The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast, and I know we haven't been talking about numbers lately, but Alana, our producer, just informed me that this is episode 65. 65 and 91 episodes total if you count specials and other things. Which means we've really made a lot of specials. We have. We made a few. Well, you know, Sundance gets broken up into a few different parts and yeah, things yeah. like that. So, But uh, anyway, we got a great show today. We're going to be talking to the director and DP combo behind a fantastic movie that had its world premiere at Sundance called Dinner in America. Nice. And the team there is Adam Raymeyer and Jean-Philippe Bernier. And uh, that's about as best as I can get with French. So I hopefully that is close. Better than my French. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I could go on and on about Dinner in America, but I do in the interview. So I won't um, I won't spoil it here. Ben, we should dive right into the emails and Facebook messages and uh, Instagram messages we've been getting from our fantastic listeners. Yeah, we've been kind of overwhelmed. Thank you so much for uh, reaching out to us. We we really do read them all. We really appreciate it. It's it's awesome to hear from you. We pretty much respond to all of them, too. And we even do a few shout outs on the show. Like right now, I have to start off with a big thank you to Stefan Eliasson, who listens to us in Sweden. And he wrote something fantastic here, which is love your podcast. Grateful for all the work you put in. An episode I would really like to hear is you guys discussing kind of dodgy films like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Sharknado, Snakes on a Plane, and such. Why only focus on iconic great films? Why indeed? To this, Stefan, I say you haven't been listening to my half of the show because I'm always (laughs) talking about movies like that and... Uh, that that's true, and I don't consider hey. them dodgy. I consider them to be awesome. Yeah, actually, not not dodgy at all. In fact, uh, we were just talking off mic beforehand that one of our early episodes, Mike Mickens, he is uh, famous for having shot Leprechaun in the Hood. Lep in the Hood here to do no good. <laughs> so so, uh, uh, Stefan, uh, go back and listen to uh, uh, Mike Mickens but, episode. For, but in in all truth, Stefan, we'd love to talk to more people who do those kinds of movies. Obviously, I wouldn't tell a DP that I thought their movies were dodgy or subpar. Mm-hmm. I think that no, those but, but movies, B movies are acceptable. Having uh, worked yeah. on tons of movies like yeah. that myself, I find them to be always a labor of love. I enjoy making them. They're fun to make. They're fun to see. The fan base of those movies are rabbit. I worked on uh, the fourth Hatchet movie they, called, they... <laughs> called Victor Crowley. And I was at the premiere of that at the Arclight in Hollywood. And I've never seen, I don't know that I've ever seen a more appreciative audience. You know, not every movie can be attack of the killer tomatoes they can't but that's true only only one movie can be but you need to have attack of the killer tomatoes uh to to fill a a void you need to have that to to fill a space well and i'm i am old enough to have actually seen killer clowns from outer space in the movie theater when it came out and i enjoyed myself quite a bit and supposedly they're making a new killer clowns movie same uh, filmmaker so uh, uh you know watch this space i i am pretty sure that people who make those movies quite often have as much fun as you are having watching them. 
Oh, maybe more so. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, in the case of something like Killer Clowns, like that's like the gold standard in really uh, subversive puppet and uh, weird ass makeup effects kind of movies. Hey, we also got to give a a big uh, special thanks to uh, Lucas Ryusen. Ryusen, I I hope I I did well with that. Uh, Lucas, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think he's in Belgium. And uh, I'm going to summarize the very long message that he sent us here. But he wrote, hey, guys, just to say that I'm a big fan of your shows I discovered recently. I really like your different approach about the philosophy of cinematography and the angle you give to the interviews. Thanks a lot for making my car trip really enjoyable. Uh, and he, he, he summarizes saying, hey, last thing, uh, I'd love to hear a roundtable of young DPs that have maybe made one like their first or, or two features and sharing their thoughts about starting in the business. Thanks again. We would love to do that as well. So we're uh, we're already trying to think about who that might be and uh, how we can make that happen somehow. I'll throw it out there, though. If you are a young DP who's maybe made a couple of features and you might want to be on the podcast and you think you have something really to, to say about it, send us an email, send us a message. Maybe uh, maybe we'll select you. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that we ended up interviewing someone who reached out to us. That's totally fine. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, we also have to give a huge shout out to Justin Morrow, who wrote something uh, really nice in a Instagram message. Justin Morrow writes, uh, loving the recent podcast episodes. Awesome work. Hey, thank you, Justin. That was great. Thank you, Justin. Awesome listenership. We also got to thank someone here who goes by the screen name, which uh, it might actually be their their real name or, or partial real name. But uh, Pickle Kitten. <laughs> no, not you're Pickle. welcome. Pickle Kitten. <laughs> Uh, no, the person listed here is Malassi, Malassi, Malassi T, Malassi T wrote, love the podcast. Can't believe you don't have more followers on Instagram. Hey, thanks. We neither, neither can we, yeah, we, that we can't believe that we, we don't have more followers on Instagram. We, we are some compelling content. We, well, we just started, we are very young. We're what, six months in on Instagram, something <laughs> like that. So, but we're, we're, we're slowly, but surely working our way up. Okay. So enough log he, rolling for ourselves. He, he continues though. He continues very oh. engaging and informative podcast. Thank you. I am anxious to listen every week and it gives me something to look forward to as I work. Don't know if, if you'll respond to this <laughs> and if not, that's cool. I'm a soon to be screenwriter and I love understanding the cinematography perspective on filmmaking and we did respond and thank you again very much malachi t excellent we look forward to seeing movies made out of your screenplays and talking to the dps okay so close focus uh, ben ben what did you want to talk about for well, close focus today? I, I feel like we have an object lesson happening right here in the building where we are currently sitting in delightful burbank california which is you are building a screening room that's true. And I think that it, it kind of opens up a, a lot of things that are worth discussing because a lot of people have their own screening rooms. A lot of people try and figure out how to, how to put something like this together. What is the utility for you as a uh, camera shop to have your own screening room? Obviously, you are not professionally offering color grading services or screening services, but I will let you talk about why you decided to put in a screening room. Well, kind of always wanted to have it here because the camera is only the first part of the whole process. The entire uh, workflow of production and cinema, of course, ends in distribution and exhibition and post-production. And the best way to see the fruits of your labor is on a big screen. And the best way to work potentially on the stuff that you're doing is with a big screen. So we put in a 120 inch, we put in a 10 foot screen. That's probably about the minimum size that I would think is appropriate for a screening room or a, a color grading room. And uh, we put in a bunch of uh, seats. And the idea is that customers will come in here. They'll want to shoot a test. We already shoot a lot of tests here. Sometimes it's tests for specific technology. Sometimes it's tests for a specific project. But being able to test 
and then not have to pixel peep and zoom in on your monitor to look at it on a big screen is a completely different experience. Well, and yeah, I mean, looking at it on even a great monitor, it's it's really hard to tell what it's going to look like when it's blown up. Have you ever had anyone like come in here and do like a makeup test on an actor or is it usually just uh, props or cameras or charts yeah, or something? We've had a couple of makeup tests over the years. Actually, with the other building, we had that more than once. People wanted to see a different wardrobe and different makeup with a couple of different cameras to see yeah. what kind of popped. And it's a totally legitimate test, and we were happy to, to facilitate. One of the things we can do, to, though, now, because it is a 4K projector in the screening room, we can actually run a 4K 6G SDI cable live to our prep bay, which kind of exists in the back of the shop. And you could come in here with a, with a Sony Venice or a Alexa Mini LF or whatever you would like and actually pump live from our prep bay up to the uh, screening room. So you could, in fact, actually have people watching it on a big screen as it's happening. That's, that. a, that's a cool idea. So talk to me a little bit about what kind of thought process goes into setting up a screening room if someone were to try and set one up on their own. Uh, well, if it's really just for screening and you're not concerned about sound, if it's really just going to be about picture, you can get away with a lot. But you need enough throw distance for your projector. You need to have enough distance that you can put the projector back and get the, the, the size image that you require. Thankfully, it's pretty easy to do that these days. There's plenty of free online calculators where you can literally select the uh, the zoom functionality of the lens if it has a zoom lens and, or and for God's sakes get one that has a lens and don't use use, use an optical zoom and not a digital zoom because you're just losing resolution if you digitally zoom in or out correct and you know uh, business projectors and some sort of uh, home school type use projectors are generally not appropriate ones that are used more for home theater are appropriate and pretty much all of the best sort of projectors and I will tell you the price of projectors have come way 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 down but best projectors sort of in the $2,500 and up range usually have uh, special service menus that a person could come and calibrate your projector competently so that you could get a good representation of what your image should look like. Well, that, and that was my next question was how do you find out, like, let's say you wanted to set up a screening room in your office or in your house and you wanted it to be something that you could use for color grading. Is there a resource that you know of that people can use to find the right projectors to do that with? And how do you go about calibrating those projectors so that you know that, you know, you're getting the proper colors? Pretty much all of these sort of uh, lower end projectors these days can hit a Rec. 709. If you're only going to be color grading in Rec. 709, which is the color space that is most widely associated with with HD, mm -hmm. uh, you're in luck because almost all of these sort of uh three to six thousand dollar projectors out there can 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 do that there are some that even come sort of pre-calibrated a little bit which uh, can help you on your on your path but if you uh, really want calibration get, sounds like something that doesn't that can't be I wouldn't trust typically you have to verify you you have to you you shouldn't trust you should be skeptical but I've seen a couple now that have come pretty darn close, which mm -hmm. is which is impressive. But it's not too expensive to have a real pro calibrate your device. And then once that happens, you're kind of off to the races. There are better projectors now which actually will display P3 and some of the other uh, larger color spaces. And for someone who's kind of working on a budget but wants to have that experience, you can you can do a lot now. Well, and I think that probably a lot of people who might consider doing something like that would be people who have a small, you know, under five person production company, but want to be able to get really good, you know, because I'm, I'm always looking at like these uh, color reference monitors that you would get for that you would get to calibrate for color grading that are designed for color grading. And they're, you know, often the cheap ones are five grand. Yeah. Uh, and that's true. And those monitors have 
certain functionality built into them that make their price worth it. But I will tell you that there's an awful lot of very, very high-end post facilities that are buying consumer-level panels that you can now uh, calibrate to uh, incredible accuracy and have really, really expanded dynamic color spaces and ranges. So there are certain brands out there that you can buy, actually, that, uh, I mean, let me tell you, the last four generations of a certain Panasonic monitor completely hit all of the numbers that you would need to hit for post. So there's a lot of these sort of LED, OLED type of screens out there that are made by Panasonic that were made for consumers that are actually being used for professional work. That are not coming in at five grand or even $2,500. Not at all. And you have to know which ones those are and you have to work with someone who knows how to make them shine and make, because they don't come out of the box like that. They come out of the box looking like they belong at Costco. But that being said- No offense, Costco. We we look forward to your sponsorship. Go on. Uh, anyway, the, the, uh, we've done this before. So actually, like the reason we're doing it for ourselves is we've actually built some facility type of professional spaces for other clients. We sell projectors. We can sell some seating. We can sell some of the apparatus that goes along with it. And that is not our primary gig here. But as being sort of a full service company where we help a lot of other uh, professionals at B2B out, we supply sometimes a lot of the uh, electronics or a lot of the equipment that goes into it. So if someone really wants to know what these things are and how best to do it, uh, they can reach out and we're happy to help them. Well, and, and I can attest to on the non-scientific end, you and I just uh, watched a little bit of the Big Lebowski on 4K Blu-ray. And they're shot by Roger Deakins. Uh, congratulations, Roger Deakins, for winning Best Cinematography. Here, which, here. Which uh, Janelle Riley and I sort of predicted. You, you know, called it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't like a psychic uh, revelation. It was pretty obvious that he, he had the advantage. Well, he, he was a front runner. So, yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the front runner, they win. But anyway, uh, we watched a little bit of Lebowski on there, and I thought it looked amazing on, on that screen. And I know that you still have a little bit of work to do, but if uh, any yeah, of our Yeah, you saw it uncalibrated, actually. So. Yeah, <laughs> uncalibrated, and you still also have like a window that's got a couple of light leaks coming in. But uh, any of our listeners who uh, happen to be in the Burbank area, stop by, talk to Ilya. Maybe uh, you'll get a tour of the theater. Demand a t-shirt. <laughs> demand. Be a dick about it. And Don't the, do that. Just, Don't do just that. Like, I will throw you out. Where's my fucking t-shirt, Ilya Friedman? Oh, and then. <laughs> ask for a tour of his new uh, screening facility. Screening facility makes it sound like you want to Yeah, it's a, no, no, it, 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 is it's, a, it is a room. It's, it's a, a nice room. It's like almost 500 square feet. No, it's it's no, a really it's, nice screening room. And, uh, you know, I, I know I'll be hitting you up to screen projects that I'm uh, working mm, on in the future. One million dollars, please. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you take checks. <laughs> anyway. All right. Hey, uh, Ben, let's get to the interview with Adam Raymeyer and Jean-Philippe Bernier. Why don't we do that then? The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hey, I am sitting down with Adam Raymeyer and uh, Jean-Philippe. Help me, Jean-Philippe. Bernier. Bernier. My uh, vocal palate has never been able to um, do well with, with uh, French names. I'm, my apologies. You just so. have to let go. You just have to let go and just go for it. Jean-Philippe Bernier. I'm way too, I'm way too high strung. You like that? Was it good? It's perfect. I love it. Jean-Philippe Bernier. And, and you're both here with me today to talk about your movie, which just had its uh, premiere here at the Sundance Film Festival, and it is called Dinner in America. And I'm going to start off and say I loved this movie. I laughed. Uh, if, if you were in the 8.30 a.m. screening and heard someone in the front row laughing hysterically, that was me. That was you? Yeah, I was heard me. you. So, yeah. I did hear you. Yes, I, I laughed so hard they turned into coughs on more than one occasion. Yeah, so. I heard that too. But that's okay, <laughs> because we're all here in the cold and doing yeah. this up in the mountains, so... 
It's beautiful. Uh, all right. So I really appreciate it when filmmakers create worlds, worlds that might seem familiar, but clearly they are heightened or changed in some sort of way. Uh, tell me about the world that your characters in this movie inhabit. What, what was your intention behind creating this story? I mean, I think it's almost a timeless quality um, to this film where it, it sort of almost a parallel universe, like it's contemporary, but not. Uh, well, well, how about story-wise? Because clearly, you know, it, it feels like it's based in reality, well, but but at the same time, this is not reality. This is uh, this is this, this is something I, I would I would actually, you know, and I don't know how you feel about the Coen brothers, but I would say it, it reminded me of like earlier Coen brothers movies. The Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona yeah, was exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that, the, the, that feels the, about yeah, right. You know? Raising Arizona, Hudsucker Proxy, and sort of right. like the, the uh, stylized dialogue and sort of like everything is a little no. bit askew, but it yeah, feels Raising grounded. Arizona feels really good yeah. to me. I didn't ever think about it with this film, but it's like a heightened world where it's kind of wacky and, and it, it obeys its own rules. Yes. So and you fun. Set, you set that, you know, you set up the world and, and you know, in our world, there's no cell phones apparently but they speak about them but no one uses them so uh there's also sort of like a casual racism that just sort of like permeates uh you know many of the characters and there's also sort of this manic almost uh psychotic behavior from many of the characters that feel like it's real but it's just real to like 11 yeah i think with just the tone of everything with language and stuff like that it kind of harkens back to maybe things we've seen in the 80s and 90s you oh, know? exactly it doesn't shy from that but there's also repercussions for language and things as you as you find right away oh, like, oh yeah there, there's a wonderful skewering of wasp culture that kind of yeah. uh, that takes place and the punk mentality and diy and uh, like i i think i can i can guesstimate more or less right. your, your age here but uh we, we are i think both gen x and yeah. and yes. uh we're sort of the last generation who really had a huge problem with selling out and the there there is this theme that runs the movie of uh keeping it real and like mm-hmm. selling out is the worst thing that you can possibly do. Right, and that right. totally relates to our generation where I feel like uh, the eighties, the nineties, even the early two thousands had some of this and then it completely went off the rails and yes. it's only now started to come back a little bit. And I actually almost feel like it's a theme this year at Sundance, but uh, I, I admire and love that you guys went down this path and went into this world. So. It just seems also too, that there there's an opening for a film like this that there hasn't been for a while, you know? It feels right, like I haven't seen something like this. And seeing it with an audience was, on the premiere night, was proof that it that it resonated and many, many tears were shed at the end of the screening. It was, it was very beautiful for me to have so many people come up and tell me how much it, the film resonated with them. It was, it was wild, it was really wild. Jean-Philippe, tell me a little bit about how you and Adam met up here and started this. I know uh, Adam's got a history of shooting a lot of things himself, and this, I'm guessing this is your biggest project to date so yes. far. Yes. So uh, Jean-Philippe, it makes sense for a cinematographer to come in, but how did you guys how did I you mean, guys meet? It's, it came through my agent. My agent loved that script. She sent it to me that, like in my way. Like First thing, I was just signed with her. First script she sent me, read it, and I, I, I was like, at first I was like, what the fuck am I reading? I love this and then I fell in love with that script and I was like this is the kind of movie I always watch and I always say why I'm not making making that kind of movies and I got the interview with Adam Adam told me about that he saw one of my first feature that called Turbo Kid oh yes I saw Turbo Kid here 
Nice, nice. Yeah, first feature that I got here. And uh, and from that, uh, we started to just like talk about a bunch of movies and music reference and the fact that he was shooting like a band like shows and I, I grew up as a street I'm still a straight edge kid from the 80s and being in the art car scene in Poxling I've shot so many of those shows like on my mini DV cameras and then starting directing and shooting music videos for hardcore band and, and metals so I feel like it was just we, we started talking about just our life and stuff that we like and I feel we connected that way yeah I didn't mention it at all and, and in fact neither of you guys mentioned it really up until this point but music plays a big part in this movie <clears throat> and uh, I know it's not cinematography but can you talk just a little bit about the music how this came came to be well, you know, Jean-Philippe is a musician, and I'm a musician as well. So he has Les Matos. They do really awesome electronic music. Uh, I've done more, uh, and I don't know what, if you did stuff before that that was different or I not. mean, we scored, we, we scored Turbo Kid in Summer of 84 that I shot as well. And I think that was one of the things he was curious about, the fact that I'm a cinematographer that understands um, emotion with music and also the rhythmic and the, the way you use the music to, to bring the story with the image. like. 100% that was one of the biggest most important things for me for the cinematographer for this it was just a, a bonus it wasn't necessary but it was a huge bonus that he already understood music on such a personal level like I did so we connected and I think bonded on that it wasn't like we did anything with it it wasn't like we were recording music together but I just think that there's a connection there especially when he said about shooting hardcore shows and stuff like that I did the same type of thing like that's absolutely I did all sorts of a band, you know, shooting bands and doing stuff over the years. I really, really enjoy that. Um, I still do. I still would. So um, the question was, <laughs> well, just the undercurrent of music that goes through. It's really, a, it's a, it's almost a central character in this. I mean, uh, and, and there's also this punky rock ballad that sort of takes place towards, towards the oh, end. Oh yeah. The, the song that they write yeah, together. There's, there's yeah. a song. In, yeah. In the I mean, the, yeah. that, the, the history of that is so when we, when we came in, initially when we had two weeks of, of prep with the, the kids when they came in and the first day and, and by did, kids you're talking about your cast well the kids I'm talking about Kyle and Emily specifically Kyle and Emily so I had two weeks of rehearsal with them. Simon and Patty is the Simon kid. and Patty so first the first day that we on the ground we did all of Simon's uh, all the punk stuff so we had a band called Disco Assault that came from Windsor Canada they came across the river and they recorded all of the um, they laid all of the tracks down for the punk songs and then their singer Paul he laid down the scratch vocals and then Kyle um, we replaced everything with with Kyle's actual vocals and so we used that for the source music so we've got coming through the boombox or the record player in the film and then we widen it out sometimes like it it goes inside their heads and we widen it out like when when Patty's dancing ecstatically in her in her bedroom you know it widens out and and then for Patty's stuff Emily and I recorded that song together so we went that was the third day uh, pre-pro and um, we happened to have a recording studio in the basement of the production office building so we went down there and, and we recorded uh, Watermelon which she brought lyrics that she had written as Patty. I tried to frame the song really simple in a way that Kyle's not a musician but he has to perform on camera so I my goal was to to do something simple enough that he could perform it and we could believe that he actually did it. And he does perform it, you know, in the on camera. And I mean, it didn't sound like that. 
when he was playing it. But we, we had playback. But, you know, so he's playing off of what Emily and I recorded. But we did an additive build in the edit. So you're first you're hearing the drums, and then the bass comes in on top of that. And then we do a bar of drums. We do a bar of bass. Then we do a bar of drums, bass, and guitar. And then we go to the chorus, and then we cut to JP's favorite thing in the film, the two-shot. Mm-hmm. We cut to her, him turning the page. I think you love it that it's on I the beat. I love that, just that cut. Like, that change coming from like a, lo- a loud music and you cut just to this sound of like the paper I don't know that's the kind of cut I like in editing no, no I love those types of <laughs> you know what, Jay- stuff that goes with this with the with the, yeah. Oh, yeah. the music yes. well, I, like and, you noticed in our intro credit too you know it goes all the way through the the intro song and then it cuts to exactly. right on the thing and the <laughs> movie starts when you hear that that tab pop Speaking of the opening credits, I saw Ben Stiller was an executive producer of this. Oh, that's the outro credits. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that the outro credits? You were laughing so much that you forgot which way you were yeah, going. I really it's thought, okay. I, I thought it's that was on the inside. But no, I guess it was on the no, outside. it's on the outside. Okay, so There's ben, 700 producer credits after the movie. <laughs> there, there, there's a couple. But but uh, how, how does Ben Stiller come to be involved in, in all of this? The script, our, our Ross Putman, kind of our lead producer, uh, got the script to Red Hour, which is Ben's company, and uh, his partner, Nikki Weinstock. They really loved it. They were, they were really receptive to it. Ben flew me out to New York to meet with me, and we had a terrific meeting, and they wanted to be involved and help shepherd the project to to get it off the ground. Fantastic. I I assume that that's exactly what happened then, too. Yeah, that is what happened, and um, I'm very grateful to them, and Nikki is an absolute dream. He was on set for for the whole movie, pretty much, so just... A spirit animal, a guide, a sage. He's he's wise. He, he's packed with wisdom. Can't butter him up much more than that. But uh, no, I really, he's turned into a wonderful friend, and I just have all the respect for for Nikki and Ben. Tell me about creating the look for this. I, I know that you and Adam must have collaborated since Adam's got a, a big camera background. But uh, tell me how, uh, I mean, I know you shot anamorphic. You, you've got this uh, sort of heightened reality and God, wonderful production design. I think it's, it's the the burger place with the meat grinder and the mm. multi- like, you, you're, you should guys give a shout out to your production designer too, because that's like, uh, it must have been fun for you to work with the, all this, this wonderful stuff. I, uh, tell, tell me about I feel like it's, yeah, it's, setting the it's, look. It's definitely was like a team and a trio. Like it was just the look look of a movie. Like we always like talked about the cinematography, but I need to capture something on this camera. And, and it all start also with the, the team that I have with, with the, the production designer and Francesca was such a pleasure to to work with, and what I feel you, like what if you could just tell about our slate though. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to start a new trend on this thing. Like in camera slate, you always see the the title of the movie, the director's name, and my name or the cinematographer's name. And I always feel like it's why there's not the name of the production designer. So I designed this slate that looks like an American flag, and uh, and I put her name on it just because I think it's a she's part of the the team it's it's an extension i'm an extension of his work work and the same for for me so we started as doing uh, a slate just to be uh, to show the world that we actually are a team yeah exactly yeah acknowledging okay so you've got a, a lot of saturated colors it's it's a it's a very vibrant world did you do a lot of testing for this how did you come up with what ends up being your look no so we didn't have any time to test or or prep cameras and stuff everything was in chicago and we were in detroit so the thing that was really great though was as soon as I arrived to Detroit. I, I was with Adam and Francesca in the same office. So we shared everything and we talked about color all the time. I sat down with those two guys and I was like, I had this idea and it sounds maybe cheesy, but it's because I was obsessed with the American flag being Canadian when I was a kid. The colors, and I don't know, I always felt like it was a beautiful flag. It's ridiculous, but I, I was really obsessed as a kid. And I said, maybe 
I know it's cheesy, but maybe we should push the color of the flag and the saturation. Well, it certainly happens in the wardrobe too. Yeah, but that, I mean, it's we. It's a whole design. I I said it that that like just that way. I'm thinking of, about like starting a brainstorming, and they would probably laugh at me. And no, they were both on board right away, and we started to think about it. And we had this uh, obsession with like a photo shoot of like Madonna in the '80s that was extremely colorful, but with desaturated color and a lot all the whites were so white like pure white that bring all the like primary colors out there in your face and i think this is one of the best reference that we had and we kept all the way to grading with with uh, ian vertovac who also i know ian put, very well yeah uh, he's, he's a good amazing friend. colorist and it was such a pleasure working with him i didn't even realize it was him but i i, I should have no yeah but sense. yeah yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's like for the color palette we started with. And for me, it's like I didn't want to to make that movie that use a lot of color lighting and what's more a little bit more trendy right now that looks beautiful. But I feel that movie needed to be raw and punk and it needed to be more natural in a kind of not natural lighting, but natural color like you saw in the 80s. And you still feel a little bit in that Napoleon Dynamite and and Welcome to the Dollhouse. All those colors, or even when you look at old school stu- stuff from John Waters, it's it's colorful, but it's not done that much by the cinematography as much as the collaboration with the art deck. No, no, I, I you know, it's it's interesting you say John Waters because this is not a campy movie, but no, but there is an aesthetic for sure that you can you can I definitely feel like some influence in sort of like your your overall maison scène, the whole thing that's sort of like almost a John Watersy sort of a, yeah, aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, it has the, the so much fun, the the, the the in your face style that he has and trying to like trigger something out of the audience. So for sure it was a good reference. You know, on the Cinematography Podcast, we actually often don't talk much about cast, but I really would like you to mention a little bit about Simon and Patty and, and basically because they, they're in like every single, maybe, I won't say shot, but every scene of this movie. And they're so good. They're so very, very good. Tell me a little bit about how, how your cast came to be and how you knew you found your, your Simon and Patty when you uh, cast them. And it's either or, it's 50-50. Like, it's either, you know, we do the first day in the life Simon piece, then the day in the life Patty piece, and then we merge them together. But it really is them the entire movie. There's no there's no scene work outside of their world, the whole movie. It's their thing. So I, I don't think there's one scene that cuts away to somebody else doing something. So how it came to be, I had a friend, uh, well, so Ross, they did a movie a few years ago where they had, Kyle was one of their finalists that they were looking at. He wasn't quite right for the part. He didn't get the job, but they had an email for him. So one of the producers Ross is working with was nice enough to slip the script to Kyle. And then for three years, no response <laughs> at all. It took, it literally took JP, Jean-Philippe, going to Romania and shooting a feature with Kyle. Oh, wow. We had cast this film another direction, and it fell apart, and JP was shooting with Kyle, and he was, you know, the film had just fallen apart, and and JP was like, I don't think they have a lead, you know, it's a really cool script. And uh, Kyle uh, said, well, what's the name of it? And he said, Dinner in America. And he's like, I think I have that script. I think I got it. He went back and read it in his email from like three years prior. Yeah, he read it after three years and flipped out. (laughs) The next day I get a call like that from Nikki Weinstock that Kyle Gallner's interested in the script. And I'm like, Kyle Gallner, like we gave that shit to him three years ago, you know? And so I got on a Skype with him and we talked for three hours and he got the part. So that's incredible. Emily was a submission. 
Uh, she was a tape submission. I think her, her agent may have back-channeled a little bit and just gave it, I think they bypassed the casting director because we, we were actually getting really close and there was a girl that I was looking at and I had given the part to. And then I think she got a little scared and nervous. There were several people that I had cast for this role that got nervous and kind of chickened out. And, uh, wow. Did they did they tell you uh, why they got that freaked out about it at all? Or was it just... I just think that Patty's a hard one to like wrap your head around if you're going to really be able to pull it off or not. Oh, no. you got to commit. Uh, 100%. Yeah. So Emily, her submission tape, first of all, it was like really well shot. Like you get a lot of submission tapes that are like on, on you phone. know, on a phone or something. Hers was like with a 5D and it was like, it had lighting. It was like, it was like nice modeled lighting, you know? And I was nice. like, oh... And honestly, I'm just going to give a that, shout that out. That made to, a difference. Yeah. 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 You, use your DP friends to like shoot your, you know. Uh, you know, you know. Like, to roommate, the, right? The, like the, Emily's roommate's a DP. So I think that he shot, he, he probably did. shot that thing. Yeah. He did. Yeah. I mean, all, I'm just, I'm telling all, you know, all actors out there, have your DP friends, you know. That's right. Pay, throw them a couple, you know, throw them a dinner, throw them something, a couple bones. You know, have your have your auditions look really nice because it makes a huge difference to the director when they look at it. You're like, oh, I can really see this. It's dramatic. It looks good. Uh, you know, lighting was really nice and soft. And I was like, oh. But beyond that, her performance and her mannerisms and the ticks and kind of things that she was bringing to just a just a audition tape were spot on and not that different than what you see in the film. She she had it down. She knew what she was going to bring to it. And we didn't stray beyond that too much with stuff. You refine things a little bit and fine tune when you on the day or in pre-pro. But it's that initial spark that you see that that's the real thing. That, that I mean, For Kyle, I can tell you right now that Kyle Gallner is cast in this film. It wasn't based on some body of work of Kyle's that I saw. It's just simply because of his Facebook profile picture. Hmm. That is Simon. His profile picture is Simon. And I don't know who, who snapped that photo, but the essence of what I wanted in the character is captured in the, his Facebook profile picture. And I, it, it had nothing to do with other things. I have seen him in stuff. But nothing that says this guy can do Simon. It's that profile picture. I swear. It's the, there's just a spark in the eye. And for me, it's all about the eyes. Well, you had not seen any of his, uh, his, his other stuff? Or oh, I've seen his other stuff. Oh, he saw his but, other stuff but, but Simon's so different than things I've seen from him. There's nothing that he's done that's like mm-hmm. Simon character. So it, and talk about committing. Holy crap. He commits so he commits hardcore. He, he's into that 100%. And it's, it's great. It's I, wonderful to watch. I just, it's, I'm telling you, it was that photo. It was just a photo that was like, so it's just, honestly, it comes down to the power of when you have somebody that can extract the essence of like a look or a thing or a vibe, none of this shit, like audition tapes and all this stuff, they don't matter. I could do it off of a headshot. It's just the eyes. The eyes tell you everything that you need to know about somebody. So uh, with Kyle's Facebook profile, I knew that's why he was in my top five for Simon anyway, because of that picture. That picture hadn't changed, though, in the whole span of time. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't think we have a lot of time here, but uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I would love to have you guys on the show again and actually talk about either this or something else much longer. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you both for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was Adam Raymeyer and Jean-Philippe 
Beignet. Thank you very much for being on the show. It, it was uh, it was great having you. I look forward to actually seeing the film since it hasn't come out yet. No. I am really I, looking forward to seeing it again. I like, was, you know, I, I, there's some movies that you go, that's great. I'm not watching that again. That is a movie I'm going to watch again for sure. Nice. So bill paying time, Ben. Who's Bill? <laughs> bill? Uh... It's it's uh, it's our bills. We're paying our bills. All right. Okay. We got to thank our fantastic sponsor, Aperture, who makes fine, fine LED lighting. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about a light that is not officially announced, but they've kind oh. of been teasing it a little bit lately. It is in some ways uh, a member of the 300 family. The uh, They had the very fine 300D and then 300D Mark II, which we have talked about in this exact same build paint segment. Say, when you say 300 family, I just imagine them all standing uh, charge at Thermopylae as, you know, as oh, Spartan yes. soldiers. Half yeah. naked. Yeah. Armor. Slow-mo. Yes. Shot, ooh, by, ooh, shot by Larry ooh. Fong. That's right. So uh, there, there is something about it. You kind of feel like you're going into battle when you've got uh, you know one of these aperture lights at your side but the newest nice one play. yeah the newest one they call the 300x and the 300x doesn't have an official release doesn't have an official price but you know uh, i'm i'm assured it's going to to have all the details revealed uh, shortly and this light is not as bright as the D2, but it is color tunable it does do both daylight and tungsten in one unit which is pretty cool very cool yeah and you don't have a price on it yet no, but I expect it to be inside the same family. I, I don't have any insider knowledge, but I'm expecting it to be in the same sort of range as the other lights. Some people are going to be like, no, give me the maximum output, the maximum power. They're going to want the traditional ones. The other lights aren't going away. This one is like it's 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 less. And hey, I have, I've got a feeling that if you've got to have bright tungsten and bright daylight and have them both work well, might might be a significant drop for for either one of those blending them might be nice blending 4300 sort of thing might might be powerful but for the most part it's probably going to be a stop or two less i'm guessing for sure but this this, i mean just because of the physics a a stop or two less on your wallet as well are you thinking no not necessarily i think it's probably going to be pretty similar i i I think it's going to be pretty pretty similar but but you're you're paying for the function of not having to gel that that's what it is and gelling is a super bummer. I can attest to that. It's not a bummer. People do gel every single day. But I agree. It but, is if I, a, but if I have the choice to not gel. Yeah, it's convenient for sure. Pretty sweet. Yeah. So anyway, 300X coming. Maybe it's going to be 300DX. I'm not exactly sure of the nomenclature. I don't think that's actually been out there. But just sort of like, you know, plan. If you're if you're thinking about, hmm, I really kind of want to buy color 300. Guess what? Your, your, your wish is going to be answered probably in the next few months. Very cool. Now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is the uh, fabled short end time. Do you have a short end this I, week? I do have a short end, and I don't know if this is up everybody's alley, but it actually kind of relates to what we were talking about genre films a little bit, and that's that I recently found a social network that is des- devoted to horror fans. Whoa, this is for you. Yeah, it's called <laughs> Slasher. <laughs> of course, it's called Slasher. And uh, I signed up for it. I'm, a, I'm a Neptune Salad on there if you feel like uh, adding me. But uh, what I think is interesting about it in and of itself, like I do think that the horror fan base, the, the genre fan base, I should say, tends to really coalesce around itself, tends to be uh, not insular. It's actually very inclusive, but tends to uh, really champion its own interesting horror stuff. And I, even, and I feel like the uh, momentum for that has been growing over the last few years. But I also think it's interesting that there are, we're starting to see the rise of kind of silos of social networks. So hmm. like things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all that stuff, those are all kind of just for everybody. But then there was the one that you told me about, is it called Stage 32? Yeah, I think that's right. 
Stage three, two, which I did sign up for, which is uh, basically like a film professional's social network. It's it's not uh, it, it's like LinkedIn, but designed for film professionals specifically. And I, I think that we're starting to see kind of the rise in social networks that are just designed for really specific thin slices of a demographic. Like they're going to be fighting over a specific demographic as opposed to something like Facebook, which is always trying to be everything to every person who ever lived. And I also have noticed on on the ones that I've been on that there is kind of a tendency to avoid controversy, that there's a tendency to avoid conflict, that uh, in short, people aren't being dicks to each other in the same ways that they are on these bigger platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Not that everyone's a dick on those. I'm on those. I try not to be a dick. But um, and, and, really, and, uh, <laughs> you're not trying very hard. Occasionally, no. <laughs> occasionally, I, I see some of the things you post. I, I know that you are not you, you quite often. You are not trying to not be a dick. That that's fair. But I'm 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 hopefully not trying to make anyone feel bad. How's that? Maybe our president. Well, he, I don't think I, if, if, uh, I mean, he's not reading, he's not reading your uh, president feels bad because of what I'm saying. Then, uh, a lot of other people in between are not really getting through anyway. Um, (laughs) but I I just think that there's something, uh, I I just, I'm beginning to see a trend that we're going to start having smaller, but really like the app and everything is really well designed on both of these actually. Uh, I think we're going to start to see smaller, very specifically targeted social networks that and I don't know if they're going to have an effect on the bigger ones or not, but I feel like in order for them to do that, they would really have to get a lot more people on. But it's like early days of this. So anyway, keep an eye out. I think it's an interesting thing to look out for. Yeah. Uh, and are you uh, are you really enjoying Slasher? Then does Slasher feel like it's it's satiating your need to connect with other horror fans? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, so much that you don't need to use Facebook anymore. No, not even close. And obviously there's a ton of horror stuff that you can like horror movie groups and stuff that I'm already in on Facebook. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not dipping my toe into it tentatively. It seems really cool. I signed up and I'm like, yeah, hey, go ahead and take all my information and sell it to, you know, Russian troll farms or whatever it is that they do. Uh, I don't, I, I'm assuming it's none of that. Uh, in fact, the guy who created it is on there, much like, uh, you know, Tom of MySpace fame, hmm. uh, and it and seems rather accessible. Yeah, you, no, it's not going to replace my Facebook problem at all. <laughs> I appreciate that you called it a problem. Yeah, so. I was going to say my Facebook use, but really, what, when I talk to people who, every now and then you come across someone who's like, I don't use Facebook, and I'm like, you have like five extra hours a day, don't you, than I do. You know, what you really need, though, is not a social network for horror fans and Facebook for like the rest of your stuff. You need like the dads who are horror fans social network to exist. (laughs) You need to talk to like other other parents of small children. And yeah, well, my friend uh, Yuri Lowenthal, uh, who's uh, he was the voice of Peter Parker in the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game that came out like last year. Uh, he's he's a very successful uh, uh, cartoon, most mostly video. animation and video game actor. Yeah, yeah. But he also he's acted in lots of stuff. He's he's and he's a really close friend of mine. And Does he do anime? Uh, yes. And he has I hear a, that's the big that's the big market that a lot of people want to get into video games and anime. Well, for, you know. So he has a son who's about, I think, a year and a half, two years older than my son. And we talked about creating a podcast called Dawn of the Dad. That would be <laughs> that was his idea. The title. I like it. Um, it's good. That would basically be us giving our kind of very unvarnished opinion of parenthood, but also bringing on other like genre people. children's book reviews. Oh, I, I would. I mean, this is such a side trip, but yeah, I, I could make Good a Night ho- Moon. I want to make a horror movie out of Good Night Moon without changing a word, and I can do it. 
There's a page of Goodnight Moon where there's nothing on the Goodnight page. Goodnight clocks. There's a there's Goodnight a, socks. There's a page that says Goodnight Nobody. Oh yeah, Goodnight Nobody. Uh, <laughs> there's also a red balloon floating around. And, oh yeah, and we all know if there's a red balloon, Pennywise is nearby. Anyway. Uh, all right. I, I can't wait for your horror adaptation, though, which I can just imagine opening night or, you know, opening opening day, all these parents showing up with their toddlers and small children to see Goodnight Moon. But it's not that Goodnight Moon. No, it's my Goodnight Moon, which is literally shot for shot, word for word, the same as the real one. But it's also terrifying as the real one is terrifying to me. Goodbye, Moon. <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to change a word, man. It's not Happy Death Day. Look, it's okay. Not, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ben Katz may edit all of this out, and maybe not. But you got this book where there's a kid in a bed in a room with a mouse running excuse around on the me, floor. Excuse me. That kid's a rabbit. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and there's an open fire. There's a fireplace with like no grate of any kind. Open fire in the room, and then there's there's nobody. There's not another person in the room, and then suddenly there's, there's an, old, an lady. old lady whispering, "Hush." <laughs> and she's and she's also a rabbit. I mean, she's an old lady rabbit. It's it's a straight up like David Lynch. Nightmare. There's like a Donnie Darko sort of it's, rabbit themed horror that you could you could explore that i I really i i i I just i don't have the time or the money to waste on something like this i don't think it's a waste i think that you you actually have this incredible idea and now you have to do something with it well now i've said it on here so i so now everybody has this idea so all of our (laughs) listeners can make their own goodnight moon horror films maybe there's a festival in your future of all goodnight moon horrors I think that's a great idea. So, Ilya, what is your short end, or should I say, what is stuck in your craw? <laughs> stuck in my craw. Wow. Uh, well, you're talking about, you know, the specific sort of social networks that might appeal to you. Yeah. And uh, how we might be drilling down into these uh, smaller and smaller slices of groups and people kind of huddling together amongst that sort of online. The larger your brand, the larger the brand, like the um, Coca-Cola company, or let's say OnStar. Yeah. Uh, all of these other companies now, these big companies, which used to just be advertisers, uh, they're going to start trying to find ways to appeal to people to get their message out because, frankly, commercial television is kind of going away the way that we know it right now. And it, I mean, the, the even, writing is on the wall. Even if even if commercial television doesn't, we all have DVRs. So, like, you know, we all do everything in our power to not watch the commercials. Well, um, there's a magazine today. Uh, there's an online publication called The Verge. I think a lot of people are very have, familiar. Yeah. They, they gave Video Palace quite a positive write up back oh, in the day. Well, they have a a very elaborate ethics statement, too, that you can go and look down where they explain the, the, the ethics of their company and they're part of a parent company called Vox Media. And they go on and on about how they don't accept things of value from companies and PR firms. But one of the th- and I clicked on this because I was a little surprised when I came across an interview with Robert Rodriguez on their site. Mm-hmm. And uh, it immediately went to this full screen uh, video. And so I turned up the sound. I was listening to it and went through the whole thing. But then very small up in the in the upper right hand corner, there was a there was a little logo for OnStar. And it says in very small print, uh, this advertising content was produced in collaboration between Vox Creative and our sponsor without involvement of the Vox Media editorial staff, which is like, OK, this has nothing to do with OnStar. They don't talk about OnStar. Mm-hmm. They're just the sponsor of this. It's an interview with Robert Rodriguez. Does Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez talk about car safety or stol- he, stolen vehicles? He doesn't, but the entire interview takes place in a car. Oh. 
at, but OnStar is not a fe- not featured in any way. So it, it they just almost, get you thinking about driving. Maybe, but it's kind of like Robert Rodriguez is like, are you endorsing OnStar? Is this just an interview? Uh, Verge? You, you, I mean, what 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 is all of this, and how is this going to be what we're going to see in the future? It's like, is OnStar actually going to be in infotainment? Is it, are they going to try to become another Hollywood reporter? What are they trying to do here, and what does that, that mean is for, super for us? Because yeah. again, OnStar is the company that basically just like installs a thing in your car that enables you, like if you lock yourself out, you can call them and they'll unlock it for you. You know, it comes pre-installed in General Motors and they are driving around in like what looks like an Escalade, but never right. once is GM mentioned. Never once is mm-hmm. OnStar mentioned in this entire thing. So it feels it feels a little weird. It feels a little false. It feels a little... I mean, it's an, it's a good interview. They have a uh, you know they have a host who's writing uh, with uh, mm-hmm. Robert Rodriguez. They don't, go in, they don't do any karaoke or anything? Nothing. No, nothing. There's, no there's nothing that like... It wasn't just for a laugh. It's like supposed to be like serious legitimate interview mm. with a creative and instead it's this piece of branded content that I, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away. Interesting. So I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. I know Coca-Cola, Marriott, a lot of these huge companies are going to be getting more and more into this. This is something I, I, I experienced a little bit out, out at Sundance to see. I went and oh, attended. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll talk at about the this festivals, more. They do that all the time. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about this a bit more, but they had a whole section of Sundance this year about branded content. And I got to interview someone from there actually, which was great. So in, in the, I mean, in the, I have made some branded content on occasion. I, uh, I did a series of action and suspense for shorts. Audi. For, for I Audi. remember yeah, they were yeah. Great, actually. I was, they, yeah, it was one of my favorite things I, I did. It's shot by uh, one of our guests on the show, early days, Fraser Bradshaw. That's right, Fraser Bradshaw shot it and did a great job. It looked it really looked fantastic. Fraser's so, awesome. So, but but here's the thing: it's like you could kind of tell that was for Audi. Audi is the central figure. Well, in can that. I t- can I tell you something about it though? Because yeah. uh, and and I'm not speaking out of school at all. The owner of the ad agency that I was working for is my friend Mike Manello who I'm still friends with. We went to college together and he's one of the co-creators of Video Palace. And when I was editing those pieces together, because it was the first thing that I'd ever done. It was first, actually, it was the first time that I'd ever taken a job editing something I directed because it was, it made just as much sense for me to do it as to hire someone out to, out to do it. And we were able to sh- uh, share drafts online. It's early days for that. It was like 2005. But sometimes I would leave in shots that kind of looked like a car commercial and I was told to take them out. Or I was told to cut them before they, they were like, that's a cool shot, but it looks like a car commercial. You should lose that. And they intentionally didn't want it. They wanted the car stuff to be background to the story that they were telling. Oh, you know what, though? Here, I, I have to I have to edit myself slightly and, and take a step back. Uh, I swear this wasn't there earlier when I looked at it. Maybe someone something added it, but I or maybe I just went straight to the interview. But there is a little paragraph here at the top that says this sounds very corporate speak. Some of the most insightful conversations come in the most casual settings. On the ride, we catch up with today's top personalities in technology and entertainment on their way to work while they're running errands or checking out a new show. Along the way, we field questions sent live from the Verge readers via a tablet connected to the built-in OnStar Wi-Fi hotspot capable of 4G LTE speed. So it sells you OnStar in the event that you decide to do high-end interviews in your car. (laughs) 
But you know what? Looking at it, in no way looked to me like the questions were actually being fielded from that. I mean, and look, I could not understand why she kept people, looking at it. I'm better. happy people are getting to make content. I think branded content, if it's done right, is uh, more entertaining than watching a commercial. 100%. Really, all a commercial is is branded content. Anyway, it's just, you know. Not, it is. It's just, it's it's obvious about what it is. Yeah, yeah. Whereas something like this maybe gets you thinking about how awesome it would be to have OnStar somehow. I don't know how. No, I, I get it. Now that I read it, now you can have Wi-Fi in your car. But I mean, the yeah. sa- this the, you know the the safety of that for your passengers is is great, but the safety for a driver and a lot of people spend time driving is maybe not so great. Well, it might help uh, for navigation systems, or I don't know, possibly. About you know what? And hey, I'm not opposed to advertising. I'm not opposed to branded content. I guess my issues tend to be is when it feels sneaky or I can't tell what's going on and I think that we are just on the verge of a whole lot more of this the verge (laughs) (laughs) all pun intended all right all right so Ilya who do we need to thank uh this week hey let's thank Alana Cody thank you Alana for kicking all the ass and also for sending us all those nice emails and Facebook posts and Instagrams and stuff it it, you know we're not obviously doing this for the money so what money it's uh it's it it really does make us feel like oh wow we're we're reaching people because it means a lot to us to do it but it also means even more i think to know that it's it's helping people with their careers or helping people figure stuff out so thank you alana for sending that stuff along yeah and uh thank let's thank k's k's you know the music is still great but uh maybe maybe We'll start a new season when we hit 100 episodes or something. Maybe we should get some new music. Yeah, we should. I was actually uh, having a chat with Kays a couple of weeks ago, and he suggested he might be amenable to the idea. He brought it up. I did not bring it up. Whoa. Uh, he might be interested in making some new music for us now that, you know, because when he made the music, we didn't really know what the show was going to be. No, not at all. And, I, I uh, love his music. I love all I love all of Kays' music. It's why I asked him to do it. But, uh, you know, it, it might be a fun way to uh, rebrand a little bit. Who knows? Maybe even put a new logo on the on the iTunes You know page. what? We could totally use a new logo. If someone out there would like to design a logo for us. <laughs> you already you already have a, a better logo. Anyway. Uh, we, we still, I could we could use a better one. That logo is that, some crap that I threw together on in Photoshop in 10 minutes just so we would have something to something, have there. Something, yes, yeah. exactly. And now it's it's basically 10 years, well, seven years old. Seven years old. Oh, man. Logos have come a long way in the last seven years. They really they? have. Uh, we could have hired a professional, but no, we no. got we got you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, so uh, we also want to thank Ben Katz, who uh, actually manages to make us not sound like the imbeciles that we are. Sometimes I think I still sound like an imbecile. Sometimes. Uh, well, don't be so hard on yourself, man. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad it's just me. Uh, our listeners, dear listeners, you know, we so enjoy getting those email messages. And uh, you could really help us just by liking and subscribing and Super reviewing. Easy. Uh, Facebooking, Facebook liking our page or Instagram, Instagram following. We're like 470 now. We're, we're on our way. Also, like if you know someone who likes cinematography, say, hey, I heard this cool podcast. How much does it cost? It costs you nothing. It's free. You can listen to it whenever you want. And we will see you here next week for episode 66. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.